Good morning, everyone. All right. Any of you that are on social media, Jeannie, you see that um, the the meme uh, yesterday that went around had Yoda on it, and uh, it said, uh, "Spring forward, you must, or late to church you will be." <laughs> um, so I have a feeling. Maybe there's a few of us that uh, are like, oh, wait a minute. Um, yeah, so we'll, we will continue. Gosh, uh, I was just talking to some, some folks, and we're going to continue to pray for Ukraine. Things are getting difficult, uh, and uh, I know that we have, we have some people that have been interacting with far-reaching ministries um, on some of the things that are being done, and also uh, Mercy Projects. Um, and there's a lot of stuff. So um, be praying. If you get a chance to go on, on those, uh, on their websites, Far Reaching Ministries is where Edward Ramaya is from, uh, who spoke here a few weeks ago, um, and then Mercy Projects. If you get a chance, go online and see what they're doing, and if it uh, fits your heart the right way, maybe help, uh, help them out with some of their needs. So we are in Luke, Luke chapter 5. If you would turn with me there. We're actually going to also go into Exodus. Um, so uh, maybe put your finger in Exodus 7. Um, but we're going to start with Luke 1 here. And this is our passage for today And as we go through our series in Luke. I'll go ahead and begin reading. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the boats, which was Simon's, into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put it out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, we will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, and they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought back their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Our merciful God, we thank you for giving us yet another Sunday morning to gather in your name. We surrender our thoughts and our minds to you to be transformed by your holy word that, that you have given us to know you by. May we, Father, approach the scriptures with reverence and awe this morning. May, may we be astonished at your power and at your authority. Be captivated by your grace. God, we in, invite your Holy Spirit here to fill entirely this place and entirely our hearts 
as we open your word, as we partake and participate in that which gives us knowledge of that which is holy. And so we give over this time to you and to your sacred word in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Last week we looked at natural and supernatural forces and how they must submit ultimately to God's authority. Today we're going to see God's calling on some people and how they also respond to the authority of Jesus. Does anyone here like fishing? Anybody? Somebody always likes fishing, right? We, we all, some of us, I, I, we don't all like fishing because you have to clean them and that can get gross. I like fishing uh, on occasion. I like to go out, I, you know, out deep sea fishing with friends that have big boats and way more money than I'll ever have. And I like to go uh, fishing right here. Let, uh, Wayne let uh, uh, Jeremy and I borrow his little boat and go out fishing in Lake Hemet. And we, we caught some enormous bluegill. Um, <laughs> That's what it was. He caught a couple of and, uh, little bass. You know, and, and have any of you ever told the truth about the one that got away? Right? Like, it was the biggest fish I ever did see. It was a bass with teeth like a Tyrannosaurus. Right? All right. Well, our, fi our fish story today is absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's no reason to doubt the story. You don't lie when you say, oh, I didn't even get a nibble. Like, right? You, you, you lie about everything but that, right? Um, in fact, you would lie about that. You would say something different if you were not telling the truth. What's there to even lie about? Jesus comes along and he... He alters the outcome of the entire story. But before we start, I want to go all the way back to Moses. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're not going to get into the story about how Moses was born during mass infanticide and, uh, of the, of the uh, Hebrew babies in Egypt and how he was spared by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, in fact, I'm not even concerned so much about Moses this morning as much as I am with Pharaoh. God had come to Moses. He had identified himself in the burning bush as Ego Ami, or the great I am. The, the promise that he would deliver Israel from uh, slavery under the Egyptians is what he was giving Moses. And God tells Moses eventually to, what to say to Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron, they both approach Pharaoh and in Exodus 3.10, it says this. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and just as the Lord commanded, Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and he became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
Now God continues to tell Moses to go back time after time with a new miracle that God would use to demonstrate his power. Exodus 7.20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, and lifted up the south and struck the water of the Nile, and the water and the Nile turned to blood, and the fish of the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Remember when I was... Uh, in the 90s, I was getting my pilot's license. I got my pilot's license, and I would often fly over Lake Elsinore before they put the outlet in. And it, from 5,000 feet, you could smell that lake. It was awful. That's what this was. So they could, it says there was blood throughout the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Pharaoh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. The next plague was frogs. Aaron stretched out his hand over uh, chapter 8, verses 6 to 15. Aaron stretched out his hand over the water of Egypt, and the frogs came up and, and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frog, frogs come up on the land of Egypt. They just made the problem worse, right? And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs for me and my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. And they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did as according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and his heart would not listen to him. So we see that there the magicians were able to replicate the miracle again, just making matters worse, just adding frogs to the frogs. And so God removes the plague to show his power, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened yet further. And so the miracle plagues continue, but by now the magicians are proven powerless. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck down, or struck the, the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt, and the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then we continue with the plague of, uh, of flies in verse 23. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies in the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. And the land was ruined by the, uh, the swarms of, of flies. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron 
and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right for, to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are in abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord, our, uh, to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will not, or rather, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And he did not let the people go. Following chapter 9, the livestock of the Egyptians died, yet that of the Hebrews lived. Same story, Pharaoh's heart was again hardened, and Moses and Aaron blew soot, which became boils throughout the land, including all of the magicians, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart yet again. And then there was hail and lightning, which destroyed uh, just about any crops or livestock that was left, and Pharaoh begged Moses, and the hail ceased, and his heart was yet hardened again. And then in chapter 10, we read about the locusts, so if there's any remaining crops left or any crops that sprouted up after, there that goes, and yet God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So then God brings darkness over the land. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Finally, Moses gives Pharaoh the warning of God's final plague. Exodus 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, says Moses, about midnight I will go out in the land, or go out rather in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a very great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow to me and saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders will may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel out of his land. So then, of course, we get Passover, where the blood of the sacrificed lambs is painted on the doorposts of the homes of the Hebrew slaves, so that many would be, or so that they would rather be passed over when all the firstborn babies and animals were killed in Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. <laughs> nice guy, right? So Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart had become so hard by now that he changed his mind and sent his army after them. And, but God is one who fulfills his promises. So ultimately, if you remember, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. But then as the Egyptian army, army followed on dry ground, they, the Egyptian army goes in, the Israelites are exiting the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closes up on the Egyptian army and swallows them and drowns them all. The word of God through Moses to Pharaoh was very simple. Let my people go. It was simple. That's not hard. We can memorize that. But Pharaoh would not submit to the authority of God. So let's go to our text for this morning. Luke 5, 1 and 2. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, these first two verses give us the setting. It sets the stage for what is to occur in the following verses. So Luke, remember, it's not written chapter and verse. Uh, there's no chapter. It's just one long narrative that's given. We later added the chapters and verses uh, to help us to find parts of Scripture and to identify them. The people, crowds were pressing in on him. And it's a continuation of the previous thought that, was, that we saw last week in chapter 4. Luke 4, 40, uh, 42 to 44. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so these people crowding him is a function of their astonishment, right? They, he was sent to preach, and they were enthralled with his preaching. And he's standing by the lake of Genesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, and all of them are with him. And, uh, you know, Peter's fleet of boats had rolled in. And it says that he saw the boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them. They were washing their nets. Now, if you recall... Simon Peter's from Capernaum. And so we're probably somewhere around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee there, if you look where Capernaum is. And so somewhere in that area is where we would probably be. And after pulling those fishing nets in and out of the boat all night long, regardless of how many fish you brought in, they would, the, the nets would have to be untangled. They'd have to be examined for damage. You'd have to pull any of the junk out that you might have drugged over from, you know, old car batteries or tires or whatever, because they had those back then. Um, there we go. I was looking for the laugh. No, but, but no, they would have to pull, they'd have to clean the nets. They'd have to get them. I was, I was a college student in the 90s, and I worked with a, an aircraft mechanic as an apprentice, and I learned 
early on that if you take care of your tools, nobody, if you take, your tools will take care of you. If you take care of your tools, your tools will take care of you. That principle served me later uh, on uh, as, an as an electrician too. It served me very well. Um, and so Jesus is there. They're taking care of their tools. He sees them. And what happens? Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and talked to the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now, so he, he gets into one of the boats, specifically Simon's boat. Now, remember that Jesus already has a relationship with Simon. He already knows Simon. He uh, had probably been staying with him. With, with, with Simon and his wife. He, he had uh, healed his mother-in-law's fever. And so he asks him to go out and he sits down to teach them from the boat. And so it may well have been that getting out a little bit from the, from the shore would get him to a place where, where all the people on the banks of this lake could see him and then he could project his voice maybe better so that they would hear him. But Jesus diverts his attention from the crowds then after teaching to the fishermen in the boat. And he, and he tells them, says to Peter, or Simon Peter, put, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now consider what Jesus is asking Peter, James, and John to do. Maybe Andrew, some other fishermen there, right? Imagine now what they're doing. They're exhausted from letting these, these like 100-foot circular nets in and out all night long, pulling them in and out of the boat over and over again with zero success. These are, these are big, strong guys. Right? I, I've heard people say, it's, it's never a bad day when you're fishing. Tell that to Peter. They, right? They're, they're toiling all night for nothing. They're tired. They're exhausted. And I wonder what's taking place on the shore there. What could the crowd see and hear as all this is going on? Jesus tells them, go take another shot at it. As the prophets often did, Jesus is setting up for an object lesson to illustrate something. Um, and, and we could ask this, what, what are, are we about to see an object lesson for the crowds? Or are we about to see an object lesson, lesson for the uh, fishermen? For, for Peter specifically? And I would propose that it's all of the above. And, and this is why. First off, we know it's to Peter because... He responds in a way that's consistent with him having had his life affected by this event, right? But also, we don't know what his teaching was about, but we know that it's in the scriptures, and God has preserved it here because he has something that he wants us to learn from it. So it's the wider audience, and the crowds are probably the wider audience too, right? So there's probably something there for them as well. Peter's instructed to go further out and put out the nets that he had just cleaned up. Now let's look at how Peter responds in verse 5 through 10. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down these nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their parents, or partners, that's not their parents, uh, maybe, I don't know, they, they could have been a family affair, uh, signaled to their partners in the other boat 
to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that the family, or so, so that they began to sink. I don't know why I'm having a hard time reading this passage that I've read like 60 times this week. <laughs> but when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Simon answered. He said, Master, we toiled all night when we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now listen, that word toiled, it, it can mean tired or weary. This is an exhaustion, right? The other night, I had, I had just spent two days at this uh, expository preaching workshop up in Santa Clarita. So I left Sunday night. Before that, I had to do homework. So apart from last week, preparing the sermon and everything, and then Saturday, I'm working on the, these exegesis kind of papers that I was doing, and then on Sunday I was doing the same, then I left, and I went, and I and and then I'm at this workshop that was like drinking from a fire hose, and I get home late Tuesday after sitting in traffic all evening, you know, because the 210, and, and I get home late Tuesday, and then early Wednesday I'm back in my office, and I work late Wednesday to the point that I just couldn't even think straight anymore, and, and I come home, and Denise and the kids are all Awanas, and I miss my family. I miss my family when I work just a full day, right? I, I just, I love my family. I want to be with my family. So I come home at five, six o'clock, and I'm like excited to see my family. I'd been gone for two days and get home late, and I, I wanted to see my family. And so I waited for everyone to get back from Awanas. And so they show up, and the chaos ensues. That's uh, <laughs> just. I mean, Awanas is fun, right? So the kids have had a bunch of fun. They come home all excited. And so about 8.30, I decided it was just time to hit the hay. And Denise, who's dealing with all the chaos, asks me to preset the coffee. And I whined like Jerry Seinfeld. But I don't want to preset the coffee, right? I mean, it, it takes very little effort to preset the coffee, but I was so tired that in my emotion, she may have may as well have asked me to, to run a marathon, right? I, and I did because I love my wife. But that's what the fishermen, they were, they were tired. They were discouraged. They were just, they were exhausted. They'd been fishing all night with zero success. They were cleaning their nets. They, they were looking forward to getting home, getting some rest. We, we tend to look at this as Peter resisting. I'm wondering if he wasn't doing that, perhaps he was using his whiny voice, right? Like, but well, I don't want to put out the nets again, right? He may not have been objecting and resisting. He may have just been whining, right? And maybe he wasn't sure if Jesus was aware of their recent failure. He was a professional fisherman. He knew the waters. He knew the behavior patterns of the fish. He spent a lot of time cleaning his nets. Perhaps in his mind he's thinking, I'm not sure Jesus is aware that this is highly unlikely to do anything but create a whole lot more work and a whole lot less sleep for us. We know Simon Peter 
has a tendency to open his big mouth before he has time to consider the implications of what he's saying. Like, you know this, this part, right? I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison or death with you. I'd never known the guy. Cock a doodle doo, right? You, you remember the story, right? Some of us, some of us have a strong resemblance to Peter's inability to keep his mouth shut. I may or may not be one of those people. It's sometimes hard for me not to just say what's on my mind. And, and that's often a very bad thing. And what helps us here is that we know because he doesn't think before he talks, we know that we're hearing his heart. And that's the benefit here that we have. We know he wasn't choosing his words carefully. So we know exactly what he was thinking, don't we? I don't want to let out the gnats. And, you know, listen, what if he had demanded more proof, like, like Pharaoh did, right? Like, after each devastating plague, he challenges God yet more. But the beautiful piece of this is we know Peter's heart, and there's dissonance between what he says and what he does. Even though Jesus, even though the command of Jesus, rather, even though that puzzled him, Simon Peter submitted. I think that's cool. I've heard it asked, and I even have asked this myself, if God is sovereign, if the outcome really has nothing to do with me and my presentation, why should I evangelize? Why should I spread the gospel? Well, among other reasons, Christ commissioned us to do so it's not called the great suggestion. It's called the great commission. And you can read about it at the end of Matthew. And so whether it makes sense to us or not, we are to submit to the authority of Jesus that he has just put on display very clearly here in Luke chapter 5. And when they had done this, they did it. He and the other Fishermen did what Jesus said. And I think Jesus would rather us complain and obey than disobey quietly. Now, I mean, best practice is to obey joyfully without questioning him at all. But we're sinners. Jesus knows this. We're going to fail him. So I think it's better to obey begrudgingly than not to obey at all. We say, well, what about, you know, God loves a cheerful giver? Oh, yeah, he does doesn't mean that if you're not cheerful, you shouldn't give. It just means you're going to lose some of those rewards, some of the joy that comes from it. You know, you know what I'm learning? <laughs> and and, and what, what we're going to see by the end of his life that, that Peter learned? When we get into the habit of obeying God, we learn that he knows how to bring joy and fulfillment to us better than we know how to bring it to ourselves. And we eventually learn to stop complaining. Sometimes we just have to put it into practice. They got all these fish. Their nets are filling up. Their nets are breaking. Their obedience paid off. What, what they had spent the whole night toiling over and, and failing at, Jesus succeeds at with no effort at all. Just one little word. <laughs> the nets couldn't handle the weight of Christ's provision. Let me repeat that. The nets couldn't handle the weight of Christ's provision. 
to call for help. Kate Hughes said the onlookers saw that the fish of the sea were as obedient to Jesus' will as the frogs and flies and locusts were to Yahweh in Egypt centuries earlier. There was enough fish to go around. So they had to signal their partners, hey, guys, bring your boats over here, help us out. <laughs> we're sinking. And all the other boats begin to sink, right? There's so many fish. Listen, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Christ's provision is not adequate. It is abundant. Peter continues responding to Jesus. He falls down at his knees. He says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This is why I love Simon Peter. He's stubborn. He's loud. He talks faster than his brain can think. If he were here today, we'd all be telling him to get off of Twitter. Like, quit fighting with everybody on Facebook. You're not getting anywhere. Shut your mouth. But Peter allows himself to be humbled. He allows himself to be humbled. You know, his eye roll moment is understandable. But how many of us, like Peter, have a deep fear of God because of our sin? Philip Ryken said, sooner or later, every disciple must come to the point of full repentance. We have to see ourselves as we really are in all our sin. The way we see ourselves as we really are is by seeing Jesus as he really is in all his power and majesty. And Simon Peter got a glimpse of that, didn't he? Won't you notice something here in verse 5? Simon calls Jesus master, which is what... Luke used in the place of the word rabbi, since rabbi is a Hebrew word, and Luke's audience is not Jewish, but Hellenistic. He uses the word master. And in calling him master, he recognizes his authority. But later here, in calling him Lord, Simon Peter is recognizing the identity and position of Jesus. And in recognizing this, Peter's fear is not unreasonable. Yahweh is a God of grace. But any Jew at the time would also be keenly aware that he is also a God of wrath. Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And it's 1 Samuel 6.20, the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? You know, when I walk into the, the room and one of my kids is startled and gives that terrified stare. If you have kids, you've seen this, right? They're, 
right? You, you know, right? And, and, and you know exactly what's going on. And they know that you know exactly what's going on. And they are rightly scared. And it's not because they don't believe that you love them. My children know that I love them. But it's because they've been caught doing something they should not have been doing. And now they must face my discipline. And that's what the silent stare is all about, right? Well, and also they're thinking that, how can I talk my way out of this? But that's a whole other sermon. We're, we'll get to that another time. How many of us, how many of us pull into this parking lot? And then we struggle to walk into this place of worship. Partake of communion together to read God's word and to learn together. How many of us struggle? How many, for how many of us is that a fearful thing? Listen, I think we should struggle sometimes with that. Our sin should humble us to realize that none of us None of us is worthy to participate in this sacred gathering right now. None of us is worthy. The only reason we have any right to be here is God's grace. The only reason we have right to gather together to worship him is the cross. Peter's fear was not unreasonable. When Isaiah saw in a vision Yahweh on his throne and the seraphim singing, calling out to one another, praises to God, before he even heard God's voice, this is how he responded in Isaiah 6, 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was terrified. Job lost everything. He fell into depression and bitterness. But then, when he had meditated on the power of God, here's how he responds in, in, in chapter 42, Job 42. Verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this? The eyes counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He was terrified. And that throwing of dust and ashes on oneself, that is grief. That's grief. And to grief, that response of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to that kind of humility, this is what he says in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many of us come into church mourning over our own sin, over our own unworthiness. Oftentimes we tend to flee when we are in sin. We fade to the back of the church. And then we find reasons not to be in fellowship because it convicts us and we don't like that feeling. We hide our shame. But here's what Kent Hughes said. 
the more we know of our sin and the more we know of Jesus, the more we will run to him. He, and only he, has made a sacrifice for our iniquities, taking all our sin away. He, and only he, can forgive. He, and only he, can give life. He, and only he, can put our lives together. And the fishermen, they were astonished. They were astonished at this catch. Astonishment is a, it's a common theme so far, isn't it? From the very beginning of Luke, we've, we've read about astonishment. From his very human conception of Jesus, people were astonished. And so also it says we're James and John, sons of Zebedee. Uh, here we see these, we have these loud Jewish fishermen, Peter, James, John. We know, they're loud. Andrew may have been with them. There are other fishermen. And, and Jesus just performed a miracle for them. P perhaps he had done this in the presence of a lot of eyewitnesses. Hey, Luke is gathering this information that he's recording for us from eyewitnesses. Maybe some of those people that were on the shore saw that and, and talked to Luke eventually one day. They were astonished. And Jesus calls Simon. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Lift your head, Peter. There are bigger fish to fry. And, and I will produce through you an even greater yield of an even greater species for you will catch men alive. We need to stop reading this passage like it's a corporate memo. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. No, this is, Jesus. listen, Jesus doesn't need us. We don't have to evangelize. We get to evangelize. This is hopeful. Peter's entire worth to this point was to catch as many fish as possible. He was a fisherman. That was his livelihood. That was his vocation. We all have some sort of vocation, whether it be student, whether it be firefighter, whether it be contractor, whether it be homemaker, homeschooler, whatever it might be. I'll tell you, tell you the hardest workers are the women who are at home taking care of their children. They're the, they work circles around the rest of us. We get our sense of identity from our vocation, right? Some of you, some of you might be first responders. You might be doctors, nurses. You save lives. You get your sense of identity from that. It, 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 it feels very important. And I've met a lot of people that they, they, their vocation doesn't feel very important to them. And therefore, they oftentimes don't feel like they're worth much. But whatever your vocation is, the call of Jesus makes you infinitely more valuable than any vocation you could find your worth in. I was at that workshop I told you about Monday and Tuesday, I got to meet Vody Balcom. If you don't know who Vody is, look him up. I just, I was like, 
one of those like shivering chihuahuas that like I, was, I get to meet Vody like you know cool, awesome guy right and so he's there's these numbers of an instructional sessions he he opens up for you know after the the, the you know him it was him and Tom Buck and Josh Bice and a bunch of guys and they would have these instructional sessions and then they would open up for questions and so uh, eventually he opens in one of his instructional sessions uh, for questions. And after a few questions, I finally put my hand up and it was called on. And, and I asked a question because I thought, I, I can't be the only one that feels this way. I can't be the only one that, that experiences this. I asked what encouragement he could give those of us who were at the workshop because week after week we toil away toil away studying the scriptures. We, we, we work hard. We, we, we do our outlines. We, we, we work on our exegesis. We, we, we look up definitions in Greek and Hebrew and, 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 we, and we, we go and, and, and you know, read the commentaries and, and, and we take as much information and research as we can and and then on Sunday morning at six or seven in the morning, we're sitting in our study and that sweat begins to form under our arms, breaking through the, the deodorant. And that heat begins to intensify in our necks and our mouths become dry and we can't swallow because we're coming to grips with the gravity of the fact that we are about to give the sense of God's word to God's people. And what if we got something wrong? And Vodi looked around the room and I don't know if he was checking out to see what other pastors were thinking the same thing or what but then he looked straight in my eyes and he answered Amen that part was helpful then he began to share about this, these world-renowned surgeons that had operated on his heart uh, just, just recently and, and how he had met them and talked to them and, 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 and he could tell this is not just a job to them. It's their identity and, and, it's, and it's so much bigger than a job because it's, it's life and death. These, these heart surgeons and the two patients that they operated on after Vodi both died. And he said that he could see how they wore that on their faces because what they do is heavy. It's life and death. It has mortal consequences. And then he said, if I died though, quote, this is me quoting him, if I died, I would have still woken up. And he said, you guys, is, he he." addressed all the pastors in the room. He said, you guys as pastors, he said, your job is heavier than those, that of the surgeons because you're dealing with something more than life and death. The consequences of your vocation are eternal. Well, gee, thanks, Vody. <laughs> well, that helps, right? But he concluded by saying this. He said, don't worry when you feel the weight of that. Worry when you don't. When Simon 
heard the voice of Jesus tell him, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. I think I know a little bit what that feels like. It's heavy. There's a huge weight that Peter would carry. But listen, there's a bigger God behind that weight. Was Simon Peter worthy of such a call? No, not by any means, not by any stretch. God wasn't looking for Simon Peter's worthiness. He was calling him to submission. That's what he's doing with each of us. God has called each of us to something temporal. We all have a lot in life. He's called each of us to something that won't last. But for those of us who belong to him, he has also called us to something eternally important with consequences bigger than life and death. And my question for each of us is, will we live in submission to him? Look how the fishermen responded. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him in verse 11. They dropped everything to obey the command of Christ. And we've seen over and over the last several weeks the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus. How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to be like Pharaoh? Will we delay our response? Will we change our minds as soon as we no longer feel the pressure? Will we delay obedience? We have a saying in our family, we didn't come up with it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's why Pharaoh's heart continued to grow hard. Pharaoh knew the command of God. He even verified that it was the power of Yahweh that caused the plagues, but he wasn't willing to let go of control. He wasn't willing to surrender what he believed he needed. The Hebrew slaves, he wasn't willing to do that in order to submit to God's authority. Will we be like Pharaoh or will we leave it all behind for Jesus? Here's, here's what Jesus said uh, right after the Sermon on the Mount, there was a crowd around him in Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. He gave orders to go to the other side, and a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What are we not willing to forsake for the cause of Christ? Will we respond to God like Peter or like Pharaoh? We don't know the cost of following Jesus. We don't know what we'll have to leave behind aside from our sin. But what is it that we're hanging on to that would be a deal breaker? I don't know the cost. You know, we don't know the the ultimate cost. We don't know what it's what we'll have to give up, but what what will be the deal breaker? For Pharaoh, the deal breaker was the Hebrew slaves. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. For the Jews in Jerusalem that ushered him in like a king and that demanded his execution, it was their eschatology, their understanding of, of God's word. They couldn't concede to the idea that they might be wrong about Messiah, and they rejected him. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. What would be the deal breaker for you? Would it be the 401k? Would it be your job? Would it be your beautiful mountain home? Would it be your American freedoms? Maybe it would be your family, your husband, your wife, your kids. I think the easiest thing for me to make an idol of is my wife and kids. 
And after that, it would be my vocation. I love being a pastor. But yes, good things can become idols. Each day, if I were wise, I ought to ask myself what I wouldn't be willing to leave behind for Jesus and then surrender that thing to Jesus in prayer that very moment. Lest my submissiveness be like Pharaoh's. Lest I reject the power and authority of my holy God. And I know I can do that because I know that he loves me. And I know that he chose me. He didn't choose me because I'm awesome. I'm far from it. He didn't choose me because I'm awesome. He chose me because he's awesome. What would I not forsake for Jesus? Our holy God, we thank you that your authority is worth submitting to. You plead with you to forgive us for what, for, for what we are, for the sinners that we are. We ask you, forgive us, for we have not loved you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not lived in astonishment and obedience of your son, Jesus. God, make us holy. God, give us humility to understand who you are and to recognize who we are. Let us see your grace, see your forgiveness, and run to you with all we do or think. And let us have strength and give us the will to obey you. And help us to see that there is nothing that exists in heaven above or on the earth below that is not worth forsaking for the sake of your glory. We offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise. We are weak in this mission field by your strength and we ask for it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.